Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Welcome, folks. Uh, I am proud to present to you um, a PhD candidate at the Yale School of Forestry, uh, focusing on environmental studies and doing amazing work with a project called Quick Carbon, uh, Dan Kane, who is um, doing fantastic cutting-edge science around the quantification of carbon sequestered into uh, healthy soils and bringing together cutting-edge technologies um, from new hardware soil uh, spectrometer technology that allows you to take distributed soil samples across a field at a fraction of the cost as well as uh, satellite remote sensing um, drone and other sort of multi faceted data collection to try to bring the cost down of accurate um, estimations and quantification and verification of uh, soil health and soil organic matter so that for many uses including um, farmer uh, decision making policy as well as market solutions so um, Dan and I are both uh, working together as members of the open team community and uh, many projects are relying on um, or hoping I should say to rely on the work that Dan and his team are doing um, it's still nascent and moving but uh, so there's some really quality work happening and and I think you know always uh, Dan is a high integrity scientist so you know he's not promising more than he can deliver and so a lot of what we talk about here is the science and art of quantification of uncertainty in estimations and uh, we also get into a, a, a really interesting side conversation which is you know up for many of us right now around the the knock-on effects and um, and you know, the, the ways that we can be examining implicit biases and how this moment, in this moment, the social justice movement um, is um, pushing scientists to re-examine uh, their assumptions about bias and how that informs experimental design. Um, really interesting subset of conversation there, and I think very important. Um, and... Yeah, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Um, hopefully, we'll have other members of Open Team joining the Planetary Regeneration podcast in the future. I'm intending to try to get many of the leaders in that movement who are doing amazing uh, engineering work on the software side of things, amazing uh, engineering work on the hardware side of things, amazing work on the science side of things, all bringing that together for better agri open agricultural management tools um, so we're going to be having sort of a sub-series here interspersed with with other guests doing deep dives and long dialogues with these folks uh, both as a service to that community and the broader uh, listenership here um, because i think it's some of the most important work out there and i think the approach in creating open science um, participatory science and engaging uh, farmers and citizens in 
earth observation and understanding ecosystem dynamics is one of the most important things that we could be doing now uh, in terms of where our markets and civilization and, and agriculture and, and other sectors more broadly, uh, you know, what we all need to do in order to reconnect and reweave our economy with a regenerative relationship with the ecosystems that we are embedded in, depend on, and um, responsible for. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and listening to it as much as I enjoyed uh, my conversation with Dan. All right. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dan Kane to our show. Uh, I'm really excited to chat, Dan. We've been sort of in... Um, in an, a mutual orbit around the open team solar system. And even before that, you know, before open team was really a thing, kind of, you know, loosely crossing paths in, in a group of people who are really passionate about soil health and science. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm stoked to have you on. So thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm stoked to be on here as well. Um, so you've been working on a, one of the projects I'm kind of most excited about. Oh, what just happened here? Nice. That's hilarious. Little RJD2 for the um, audience there. Oh, very nice. Uh, so um, you've been working on something that I've been really excited about um, called Quick Carbon. And yeah. I'd love it if you just started by doing a little bit of an overview of that. Um, sure. Maybe I'll do just like a little bit more framing for folks before we dive in over the deep end, which is people have heard me talking and there's a, there's a giant, I think, community of people right now who understand the importance of soil. But how the hell do you know if it's getting healthier, if it's sequestering carbon, um, how do you make claims? How do you make agreements? How do we base some sort of quantitative or qualitative um, scientifically rigorous uh, foundation for our discussions and agreements and markets and carbon? And so um, with that, I'll pass it over to you and tell us a little bit about quick carbon. Sure. Yeah. So the the sort of Oh man, the one-liner for quick carbon, I describe it as a research and open technology project um, for developing accessible methods for monitoring soil carbon in particular. And, and uh, sort of doing a lot of the important background research on how do we get to the point that we have methods that we feel confident in or we sort of know their limits um, and translating a lot of that research into actual technology tools uh, that normal users could use. So you can imagine uh, producers being able to download a smartphone app and move around their property and eventually be able to produce, you know, maps of soil carbon or soil carbon stocks uh, with, a, with the kind of ease that you would hope they could, uh, they could do easily without having to do, you know, a ton of background training. Um, and it's kind of a long path to get to that. It's sort of started um, with some of my initial work as a master's student at Michigan State. I got really interested in soil carbon there and how it related to soil health and, and the resilience of ag systems. And just began to realize that there was sort of this gap between what um, 
you know, academic researchers do and what's available to producers out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and felt like there needed to be something sort of filled in there. And at the same time, was getting really interested in open source science, um, both from the sort of, uh, I guess, you know, practice side, you know, being sort of open about your methods, publishing data, things like that, documentation, as well as from the open source hardware side. Um, and through that community met uh, Greg Ostick, um, who's also within the Open Team Universe, and Dan Travis, who were working at the time on the Photosync project, um, just one building over at Michigan State. Um, I had no idea they were there until my last year there, which was, was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and we connected and just you know formed a friendship. And then later when I uh, started my PhD at Yale School of Environment, um, was able to sort of turn it into a project with um, the assistance of, of a lot of great folks um, uh, at the UCross High Plains Stewardship Initiative um, that's at the school. Um, they gave me some initial seed funding to get something started, and then we built it up into a larger project. Um, and we've since all kind of gone different ways, but Quick Carbon has continued on. And uh, yeah, it's been really cool. Um, the, the core of the idea is to build up some you know, sort of software that makes data collection easy, but then also building a really simple open source piece of hardware um, that would let you measure the reflectance profile of a soil. And then with that kind of data, you can get estimates of soil carbon um, off of that. That's sort of the, the really simplified version. Cool. Well, so there was some stuff that you were talking about there that I, I kind of, I'm really interested in parsing out and, and deepening my understanding of. One of them is, um, you were, I mean, p- part of this, and obviously part of this is coming with my background they're background questions as well. So it's not yeah. all, I don't think 100% implicit in what you were actually verbalizing, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in the art of quantifying uncertainty mm-hmm. and the role of quantifying uncertainty about something in people agree, making agreements based yeah. on the, the claim. Because yeah. it, it seems to me that if we have consensus about uncertainty, then we can be on equal footing to talk about, you know, like soil carbon stocks in a meaningful way. We don't necessarily need to get caught up on, you know, like too caught up on the precision and accuracy of something as long as we know how precise and how accurate it is, if that makes sense. And then gradually we can get better and better. We can get more precise and more accurate but we don't necessarily need to hold up our policy or our markets or our decision making if we're if we're pretty clear about the uncertainty and we have direction and like we can basically generally say you know we're going we can go in a direction that's going to improve stocks or whatever and we and we have uh, uncertainty an idea about uncertainty does that match your thinking um and yeah say a little bit about that and and how the hell do we figure out cleanly uncertainty <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no that that definitely matches my thinking i think that sort of where i see a lot of what this work the the point it's at right now is is understanding sort of what are our comfortable bounds for uncertainty for all those different spaces you described right um soil health the policy space soil carbon markets um i think each of them is so nascent in certain ways that you know trying to figure out um 
in, in each instance, you know, how accurate do we need to be and, and to, to sort of move forward, um, whatever move forward means in each of those different instances. Um, and I, you know, I, one from the, the sort of science side, um, I think there's, you know, good agreement on the different points of uncertainty um, that are, are most important when you sort of move from a series of you know, point estimates, you know, basically I'm standing at a point in the, in a field, I took a soil sample, I do some sort of measurement on it to determine soil carbon. Um, and then a series of those that translate up into a full, you know, farm level estimate of here's how, here's how many kilograms of carbon you have in mm -hmm. your X number of acres. Um, and you, you know, a lot of that- pause you for just a second? Sure. So, so when I'm seeing that, I'm seeing that, you know, you, you sort of said you could do different types of measurement on yeah. that, on it, on a point. And so there's like, there's like nested uncertainty here. There's like layers of uncertainty. So totally. there could be uncertainty related to the style of, of lab or in-field test that you do related to that single point. Yeah. And then you could have uncertainty related to the, the methodology if it's like an even distribution of points or randomized points or points that are stratified according to, you know, soil or topology, um, topography, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those sort of like add layers of uncertainty, right? Yeah, kind exactly. Of way of thinking about this. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'd say sort of, you know, the, the two major ones I would identify are what, we might call it sampling error. So where do you actually choose to, to place those points? And do you actually get a sort of proper representative sample of a whole field, right? The, the ideal situation would be that you go around and you just, you know, sample the heck out of a place with, you know, one sample every, you know, meter, every half meter or something like that. But that kind of work is just completely impractical. So we'll never do that. So how do you get to the point where you can take, you know, fewer samples, but you get a, a good representation? You don't miss that sort of, you know, low spot in your field that's actually really carbon rich and makes up some huge percentage of the field's total stock or something like that. Well, it's long seemed to me that, you know, maybe it is impractical to do a sample every meter everywhere, yeah. but maybe it's actually quite cost effective to do a sample every meter in some places. Yeah. And then correlate that data to places where you do much l less. Um, and, and, you know, so, so that's where, for me, it sort of seems like, there seems like there's lots of fighting about, like, what's the best methodology, you know, what's the best protocol to use. But the meta, to me, the meta direction here, and I think this is where, you know, we've had a couple conversations that have gotten quite exciting to me. The, the yeah. meta science here, the opportunity is to systematize being able to compare many different approaches from the super expensive, super dense sampling that a research group might have to a, you know, almost random scatter <laughs> of yeah. sampling that's over a huge area or something and, and be able to infer some things about the relationships between different approaches. Totally. Yeah. And I think what's, what's happening now, you know, this is a, a key research question that Quick Carbon we're super interested in too, is um, that sort of really dense sampling, not practical, but 
before you even step foot in the field, um, we have access to all kinds of information um, that might tell you or, or be really useful in deciding, okay, how do I get that representative sample? And that includes things like digital soil maps available in the US context through the USDA, all kinds of remote sensing data um, from you know, different satellite platforms that give you information on vegetation, productivity, um, things like that. So where I think the research space is at is, and, and it, there's a lot of people who've worked on this for years, there's a really great lab um, sort of group out of uh, Australia that's done a lot, that's made a lot of progress on this, is how do you use information like that um, before you even get into the field and before you even start sampling to make choices about where you sample um, that gets you there. And this so- This is what's I, called stratification. Yeah, stratification. Um, and there's all kinds of different kinds. And, and so where I think um, what's pretty interesting is I think a lot of the different, you know, uh, soil carbon market efforts right now um, are, are really interested in, the, you know, a lot of them have this sort of blend of beginning to initiate markets as well as trying to do parallel research to, yeah. to make sure that they're doing things well. And a lot of them, I think, are, are pretty interested in doing some, some infield work where the sort of literature, the papers, the research on, on these different stratification methods um, is, is there, but it's, there's not a ton of it. Um, and, and there's also not a ton of it in the US context, um, at least not at the farm scale. There's some that's at sort of larger scales that might be less relevant to what they're doing. So a lot of them, I think, are, are pretty interested right now in determining, OK, if you employ this method in, in this area, uh, say you're you know, in like the, you know, the Corn Belt and the Central Plains or something like that, if you employ this stratification method in this area, what sort of uncertainty is reasonable to expect? Mm -hmm. Can we even get to that point? Um, can we use you know, other uh, like remote sensing data or, or digital soil maps ahead of time to estimate what the likely uncertainty is going to be? Um, so it's, it's pretty cool. I think we're at this point where in, in that side, there's um, a really kind of cool back and forth between the research community and the people who are sort of more on the practice side and trying to move markets forward to figure out, okay, what works best? How do we, how do we determine what works best? Um, and then, you know, uh, groups like Open Team, and, and this is where I kind of see Quick Carbon, we're, we're trying to sort of boundary span, bounce back and forth, is, okay, if we come to some sort of agreement of, around um, what works best, how do we then make that kind of method or, or that kind of practice really accessible to the people who would, who would need to be able to do it? Um, so we can move past this sort of general recommendation of uh, you know, farmers interested in knowing uh, how much soil carbon they have or how healthy their field is. And our best recommendation is uh, you know, grab a bucket and sort of go around and, and scoop a bunch of soil into the same bucket and send one sample off to the lab. So how do we get to the point where we have um, a sort of much more, a much richer data landscape um, out there? Um, yeah. Like that kind of stuff in the practice. So, yeah, 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 really interesting. So, I mean, what are, what's, can you walk me through Maybe this is sort of like a recursive question, but how certain are we about our uncertainty quantification <laughs> methods? And and I know that that's going to change. It's going to be dependent on you know how how dense the research is that's available. Mm -hmm. and so, but maybe we could like take a walk through a spectrum of places where we're really uncertain about our uncertainty um, sort of quantification, 
and places where we're really certain, like we, we're, we feel really clear. And, you know, maybe we could think about, you know, areas and agro ecosystems and just kind of like you could take me on a quick tour of like, where are we, you know, it's, there's a lot of work and where there's not very much work. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm trying to think of how to tie it to specific geographies, but maybe, you know, backing up a little bit, um, to give context on why those kinds of stratification methods work or don't work, um, I think it has a lot to do with basically our understanding of of, uh, of soil carbon and, and how it sticks around um, mm -hmm. and whether or not it does. Right. Because um, it's you know it's really interesting from a sort of biogeochemistry and ecology perspective that like soil carbon sticks around at all. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's basically you know decayed. Um, plant matter, um, partially decayed plant matter. And it's almost always like e even the sort of most um, longest, uh, sort of the, the most ancient types of soil carbon, and by ancient, I mean the, the, the sort of bits that have stayed around the longest. There's even research now suggesting that basically all of the above, all of it is vulnerable to being eaten by microbes and lost as CO2. So it's, it's really interesting that any sticks around at all. Um, and there's this, you know, sort of a great, um, sort of a lot of cool research going on trying to, term, to determine, you know, what predicts whether or not soil carbon will stick around in a given soil type. And this uh, is the reason why there are like the uh, World Resource Institute and other sort of like critics have come out and basically been like, you know, soil carbon can't be a foundation for any sort of meaningful, you know, uh, climate action because there's too much uncertainty. We don't understand the mechanisms. It could all just disappear tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And that's, that, that is a sort of a lot of the critique around soil carbon as a natural climate solution. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's well-founded, especially too, because when you consider we're sort of moving towards future climate scenarios, we, we don't have a really good understanding of how um, elevated temperatures, different precipitation patterns. Right, if it gets hot and dry, if it gets hot and dry, it could start a, a process whereby the the ecosystem metabolizes essentially and off-gasses that soil carbon. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely, there's some cool stuff and like my advisor's done some cool stuff on this where, um, yes, we know the temperature might accelerate that process to some degree, but also there's sort of, we, we can't forget that there are resource limitations that will also, um, you know, um, dictate how quickly we might lose stuff, lose soil carbon. But, but yeah, it's to, so to, dynamic, right? Because there's, on the yeah. other hand, you can build soil carbon. Yes. And there's yeah. good evidence of, you know, practices and approaches to building soil carbon. And that then has a synergistic and positive feedback relationship with, and, you know, on a global scale, that transforms the climate. And so there's like yeah. this complex mutual uh, dynamic, um, I, you know, I don't know what that type of, uh, you know, it, it's, a, yeah, there's, there's a dyna dynamic, complex feedback relationship globally yeah. and, at a and even at a local level between yeah. soil carbon content, soil health, weather, climate, you know, atmospheric carbon, et cetera. So I always, my frustration with the critique, the, the like WRI style critique is I'm kind of like, so what? 
Mm-hmm. So what? Are, it seems as though there's no good scientific argument to say we shouldn't be concentrating on increasing soil health. Yeah. Right? That seems like it could be in uncontroversial. What's controversial is how certain are we uh, that it will stick around under what conditions, etc. And part of the un- part of that is because soil and the conditions that affect the soil are actually part of a whole system. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're touching upon why why I, at least like I personally I think soil carbon is the coolest sort of topic, topic <laughs> yeah. thing to study and why I've gone way down the rabbit hole on it. I think it's just super interesting from a variety of different perspectives. Um, and yeah, I think um, the way I sort of, you know, like the WRI critique and, and how this all sort of fits into larger conversations, my sort of stock response has become this and that there's, there's a lot of good research that suggests that the total amount that we've lost, um, you know, over several thousand years of, of human activity in agriculture is, is substantial enough that uh, on the list of natural climate solutions, yeah. it should be something that we're focused on. Um, and we've lost that through erosion, through oxidization, through... Erosion, tillage, tillage, you know, expose yeah. all of that. Um, oxidizes. To, yeah. to attack from microbes and, and you'll just, you'll lose a lot. Um, yeah, so all kinds of different, you know, conversion of... of um, uh, natural and semi-natural systems to croplands. No, I'm forgetting how much how much have we lost? What's what are the best estimates of soil carbon stock that yeah, we've lost? And, yeah, what's the spectrum here of uh it's it's a so the one that is the most recent estimate that was done by um uh John Sanderman was the lead author on the paper. Um and full disclosure John's on my committee. So um but uh the the estimate was it's 130 um petagrams right yeah i always forget what the right prefix is but i believe it's 134 petagrams um globally um and they, they you know that paper is super interesting they did a lot of um sort of comparing natural and managed systems and paired comparisons to come up with a sort of map of, of estimated loss across the world um and that translates to um, a pretty substantial portion of, of human emissions. So when you put it on the list and, and when you look at some sort of assessments of different possible natural climate solutions and try and rank them, um, that compared to things like afforestation and, and, and stuff like that, which you know, afforestation is, is a natural climate solution that potentially has a lot of risk too. There's a, a ton of debate in that space right now about um, what's its real possible impact. Um, it's, it definitely, you know, falls out as one that's worth considering. So, so to kind of go back to that broader point, I think um, people are right to, to not sort of get too, as a, I've heard it described, I think, by Phil Taylor at Mad Ag, um, this sort of soil carbon exuberance. It's, it's good to, to sort of temper that, right? It's not going to be the silver bullet that saves us from ourselves. Um, and, and I think you see a lot of enthusiasm because it fits this super nice narrative around well, we can sort of, uh, sort of correct the the problems in some of our agricultural systems um, that are you know really resource inefficient and have degraded soils, and at the same time we can save ourselves from climate change. I think it's we're right. It, it, the critiques are right to not say that like yes, that's that's our path out of this. Um, but but it's sort of like at the same time we can make progress that is totally. likely very useful for climate change. 
Yeah, and it's like and a tempering of that exuberance, but it doesn't exactly. change the the imperative, basically. Yeah, yeah, and then to your other point too is, um, uh, and and I was part of a research working group that put out a, a little opinion paper on this um, a few months ago, but we we shouldn't let that sort of um, kind of tempering of the sort of soil carbon as a natural climate solution. We shouldn't sort of temper that exuberance so much that we also throw things like soil health initiatives out at the same time. You know, there's there's good reason to believe that uh, increasing soil organic carbon uh, is just good for agricultural production to begin with. So that it's sort of, that's uh, a sort of good enough outcome on its own that we shouldn't be, um, you know, forgetting about that or, or sort of undermining, you know, broader programs or broader efforts to, to improve soils. Um, Accruing soil carbon uh, just because we're not totally certain that it's going to be the perfect natural climate solution that we want it to be. Well, but and what's the down? I mean, my question is always it may or may not be that this massive climate solution, there's good yeah. evidence for it to be, there's yep. some restraint and need to temper that exuberance, as you're saying, but. It seems to me as though there's essentially zero downside risk to being all in on soil health and soil carbon. Yeah. From a market policy research, you know, agronomy perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd say. Uh, Am I wrong about yeah, that? Is there some is there some blind spot that I have that there's some. Per, per, people who are like, no, there's this big downside. We, we need less soil carbon. That will actually, that does something good for the world or farmers or, totally. you know. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd say by and large, there's, there's pretty minimal downside risks. I, there's some, you know, folks who are pointing out that there's a possibility that like in, in certain situations, um, you may begin to sort of accrue so much carbon that you end up with like what people might call a carbon bomb or something like that, that like, a soil that is so rich that it might eventually become um, a net source rather than a net sink. If, if well, it eventually it off it it will re respire a little bit of that carbon that's accrued. Totally. But that's yeah. not. But that's like. But I I have a hard time seeing that as a carbon bomb. That's just yeah. It's yeah, sort think, of like yeah. there's a sine wave of some sort in which it's going to accrue and then let go and accrue and let go depending on the conditions or or whatever, uh, but you can still amplify the total sort of sink. And then there's going to be some, it's, you know, it's like an ocean, there's going to be waves on top of that that come and go. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And I think um, it's sort of those sorts of situations um, might be, you know, kind of smaller pockets, you know, here and there, different kinds of production systems that are, are particularly not going to respond in the same way. But by and large, yeah, we have a lot of of pretty degraded soil that would perform a lot better and it would be a whole lot better for for, for production and for the world if if they if those soils increase their organic matter and were able to do um, you know produce more be more resilient you know another line of my research is on connecting soil carbon and soil organic matter to resilience to climate change so there's there's potential benefits that way too Right, because there's larger water holding capacity. Yep. There's yeah. better there's all sorts of knock-on. Yeah, more, more, maybe more resilience in the the sort of microbiome, soil microbiome, 
soil food web, like there's just more efficiency to deal, at least there's hypotheses, you know, sort of like Elaine Ingham style thinking that if the more diversity you have in, in soil biome, the more efficient, scarce trace minerals and other things can be sort of like shared and create healthy plants. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, that's, that's an area of research I'm less familiar with. Um, and, and yeah, there's a bit of a trap, I think, in ecology sometimes to, to translate biodiversity uh, directly to outcomes all the time. But I think there's, you know, there's some cool work on um, how soil food re resilience and matter being a, a sort of key, um, you know, foundational resource for, for whole soil food webs. Um, increasing it can be really useful, really important. Um, you know, I remember reading sort of a counter, I think from some of, maybe from Santa Fe Institute or somebody doing complexity science. I remember reading um, a paper that was talking about how there is sort of like a Goldilocks zone of diversity in most ecosystems where when you go past that, it it actually has you know, and I don't remember what metrics they were using to make judgments about sort of um, decreases of, I don't know, I always think of things in terms of, I guess my meta framework is kind of like a global photosynthetic capacity. That's mm -hmm. kind of like how I'm always thinking about things. It's like, what's the planet's and what's a particular bioregion's photosynthetic edge? Like how much can we capture and in what ways and in what, in what spectrums and how does that relate to you know, other things? And they were sort of talking about it, sort of a Goldilocks zone that if you get too diverse, there's certain things that start to like work less well. But it's so, I, I mean, I'm, it's so, I can't comment at all in a rigorous way about that because I don't even remember what, what the yeah. variables were they were talking about. Me neither, really. I, you know, it's, it's, I, I sort of almost went down the rabbit hole on soil microbial ecology at one point, and uh, it's always sort of tempting to, to do so, but um, sort of focused on other things. But suffice it to say, it's, it's really interesting. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's, there's people working on those kinds of topics and, and how they integrate. Into topics and it's like so that. fun to be able to project one's sort of social, uh, <laughs> you know, um, utopian dreams into the you know the somewhat esoteric and yeah. not well understood science and be able to come up with you know beautiful explanations of exactly how everything should work because it, it does over there totally and i think that's often <laughs> what happens you know it's it's uh, it would be it would be super nice if we so this sort of really clean narrative around diversity improves resilience improves this improves this you know that and i think there's you know possible evidence that it's true but i think it is sometimes people really wanting it to sort of because um, it would be this sort of beautiful narrative right that, that fits things really well um, but you know it's good to at least to see that that folks are working on those kinds of topics and hopefully we'll have like you know a more nuanced understanding um, i think the other thing i realized is that it's it's really super context dependent right uh with with biodiversity and and also dependent on sort of what is the the outcome that you care most about um so to even go back to that question you're talking about of, of soil carbon and and is there any downside risk um i you know for a while i used to think like no there's not and then um sort of interacting with some folks who are super interested in um, protecting uh california rangelands 
and um, there's a lot of enthusiasm for, for doing, you know, compost applications and oh, rangelands are relatively low in carbon. If we do these sorts of practices, we're going to massively increase them. They could be a really important carbon sink. Um, and they were really concerned because that meant that um, actually, if we do that, we may sort of shift the plant community in a, in a whole way that has these cascading effects that we don't understand. Um, and, and so I think moving forward, we'll have for sure have debates like that too around you know what what kinds of landscapes is this most appropriate in is just uh, you know net negative uh, carbon balance the only thing we care about or do we also you know need to manage natural systems for for other kinds of uh, uh, things that we care about um, totally yeah. but and in order to have those thoughts well yeah I mean. It's really, it's an interesting, in order to have those thoughts, well, we have to sort of think like a plant, like the planet, because there may be certain eco regions that, you know, we choose, you know, because we're, you know, we anthropocentrically, like we are part of the system. And at the moment we're one way or another, our actions are sort of setting the, setting the tone, you know, yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe we choose to have sort of less carbon efficient landscapes in certain regions for other, in order to preserve or, or optimize for other things. That's yeah. it. Totally. Yeah, wild, wildflowers have their, you know, sort of value in, in and of themselves. Um, and it makes me think of my, my wife works a lot on pollinator issues and, um, you know, it was this paper that came out that made a huge splash in the field where they realized that um, some degree of, you know, kind of pollinator conservation didn't actually translate into the type of um, fruit yield benefits that everybody was sort of premising their arguments on, you know, so it was like this pollinator diversity and conservation is going to translate into this economic outcome. So that's why we should care about it. Some research suggested, uh, not really. It, it doesn't matter as much as perhaps we thought it did. And and the sort of argument that a lot of the folks came up with out of that is, you know what, then we should just care about that that sort of biodiversity and the diversity of these pollinators and bees just because, um, you know, they have some sort of uh, value in and of themselves. And if, if we don't pivot towards that argument, we, we sort of may, you know, potentially lose. So not everything has to have a sort of, uh, you know, economically justifiable outcome to matter um the sort of short story <laughs> yeah totally well and also there's like the 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 length of the feedback cycle or the connection yeah, yeah. right because you know probably although it's much harder to do science on probably having you know diverse pollinator habitat and you know a, a more div like have agriculture nested in a you know, a larger system that's not agricultural and has its own cycles and diversity. Um, I think there's pretty solid evidence that that over the long term, it leads to those agro, agro ecosystems being more sustainable and resilient. Yeah. Although there may not be any evidence that it makes them more short term productive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then it's, it's also important to remember things like, you know, uh, gets touted all the time and it, it's a little corny at this point but extinction is forever so um you know you kind of can't walk it back and then the soil equivalent of that is you know 
well, maybe I'm putting my foot in my mouth when I say this, but erosion is forever. Um, you know, you might sort of lose resources in a way that like you can't really walk back uh, when it's sitting, you know, all the way down at the, the sort of terminal point of your watershed somewhere. And, you know, you can't necessarily get that soil back in, in some way. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, this, the, it all sort of, for me, my mind always moves sort of away in a way I start to tr track away from the sort of rational scientific perspective here and into the sort of like ecopoesis the world of ecopoesis or or and like to define that for 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 you uh, it's actually a term I, I don't know if you read sci-fi at all but it's a term oh yeah I do <laughs> yeah it's a term that I picked up from uh, Kim Stanley Robinson who nice. um okay who's awesome. I don't know if you've read. Any I'm on book three of the Mars trilogy. Yeah. So you've read Ecopoesis. So Ecopoesis yeah. is where I pulled that first from, right? And sort of Hiroko. Yeah. And her sort of semi-mystical sort of like Veriditas, you know, the, the art of, so I start to think of, okay, so that, that soil eroded down the watershed. It's now at the terminal point of the watershed. Can we create beautiful estuary systems out of that new alluvial deposit and yeah. can you know can we create carbon efficiencies can we create new habitats for new aquatic life and sort of like cycle that back up is it possible to go do something creative there is that problem a solution of some sort you know yeah that's interesting and i think you see some of those sorts of conversations and intentions uh, happening around you know, climate change and, and just, you know, living that the Anthropocene of, you know, we've had these, you know, incredible impacts on, on all these natural systems as we knew them, um, as we sort of move into the 21st century and beyond, you know, what will they start to look like? Um, how do we respond to that? Um, you know, is, is sort of conservation the only ethic? Um, and I think it's, it's super interesting. I, you know, it's not something I, I've necessarily come up with a firm opinion on, but I, you know, I think moving forward, it would be, you know, how do we balance sort of conservation ethics, which I think matter to some degree, or, you know, and also have some really problematic roots in a lot of ways too. Yeah. But um, how do you balance that with a, the sort of ethos of adaptation? Um, exactly. How do we get to a point where we're sort of dealing with the problems we have um, that we've created for ourselves. So, yeah, uh, totally. Word. I mean, that's the, that is a good, I mean, in, in a way, I think that that's a good sort of dialectic to hold mm. in terms of an ethical stance around conservation and adaptation and what is a middle path. Like what's, what's something that re appropriately reconciles that and probably has a lot to do with context and place and, totally. and like and you, you were bringing up culture like are there cultural decisions that we're making are there intrinsic values that we're just committing to in a particular yeah. space that is just this is just we love this this is, so we're going to you know value it and um it's interesting i think of you know california rangeland i I mean, I love ranching culture, but I always get a little sad about California ranching, to be honest. Oh? I, where it's like, 
I mean, what that landscape used to be, my understanding of what that landscape, if you read like Kat Anderson's Tending the Wild. No, no, oh. I spent a decent amount of time in California and I, and I, I really should know more. Um, read, you have to read Kat Anderson's Tending the Wild. Okay. It's so beautiful. It's about um, the Native American stewardship of the landscape. Yeah. And so, there you're getting this sort of like fire management uh, for game and oak, uh, you know, managed for oak dominance, um, acorns. So that like the whole, you know, the whole ecosystem was sort of, um, yeah, managed in a particular way. Yeah. Which, which was is radically different from the management style that we see today which tends to have fire suppression um you know uh, sort of cattle and rangeland centric in certain areas vineyard centric in other areas um forestry etc so it's just it's cool to think of i mean i think of this too the chestnuts the american chestnuts that used to be on the East Coast. Yeah. The amount, the sheer amount of calories that were produced by these, Chestnut. you know, 500 year old stands yeah. of old growth chestnuts was crazy. And so I always, I just always think, you know, if we were to say we have this mix of lifestyle you know, we want to be out and managing and with the landscape. Maybe that's part of the ranching ethos is to have a relationship with the land. And, and obviously cattle, the relationship between humans and cattle is so old and beautiful. And there's just such a tight bond there. We've been, you know, at it together for a long time. Um, so I don't, not to diminish that, but just what, what is, what's the potential of a landscape in yeah. terms of, you know, turning sun into abundance and i always have the sense that a lot of those rangelands in california are not near like are not nearly achieving their potential yeah and that's i mean really broadly too i you know i think that, that that's all really interesting to think about too and and how uh, this this is you know something in particular over the past few weeks with the protests around George Floyd's murder and, and a sort of Black Lives Matter movement and, and that sort of intersecting also with um, uh, conversations around um, Native American sovereignty and, and, and things like that, um, you know, that, that sort of broader intersection, it's got me sort of thinking way more about um, colonial roots of agriculture, particularly yeah. the U.S. and their sort of uh, Roots in chattel slavery and, and and everything like that, and and more broadly about how um, the way we assess the value of, of different agricultural systems and our goals for them, you know, are, are, are there ways that we should be reassessing that um, based on on those histories, um, and and if we're sort of trying to move towards sort of equity and, and justice, how do we sort of uh, bring those those sort of histories into those conversations and everything like that, and and how does that also translate to you know, I, th I think we could take a really, um, you know, climate change is so pressing, right, as, as an issue, um, and, and natural climate solutions 
um, as a possible pathway seem interesting, um, but natural climate solutions are, are going to be rooted in all these sort of land management decisions we make. And the way we've made land management decisions in the past have been, you know, pretty problematic in a lot of cases, right? Um, and you don't even have to go back that far. You can look at, you know, the sort of red projects and, and other sorts of, um, you know, carbon offset projects and things like that to see, you know, ways in which we've just sort of uh, reproduce problems of colonialism um, in these spaces. So, so I hope as we kind of go forward and, and, and within soil carbon as a, as a topic particularly, we can figure out how to do that and, and, and do it well um, and, and not sort of um, repeat the errors of the past um, or even, you know, figure out how to leverage it for more just outcomes um, and, and sort of... Totally. Well said. I mean, I think it's, it's something I also think a lot about and... Um, I actually am I'm gonna be trying my best to start to steer the podcast towards um, some of the folks that I know that are doing really great work in that world and you know, kind of like weaving those voices of people who are holding a strong sort of living image of what land use looks like from a, you know an indigenous lens, from an equity lens. Um, yeah reimagining landscapes and you know in a way you know markets and how we yeah how we cultivate and tend the earth when we're not trying to optimize for extraction to yeah. benefit an elite which yeah. which in some way through we have about 10,000 years of yeah <laughs> Agro, agricultural and economic history of extractive agriculture to build surplus and distribute it and hold that to, for an elite. Um, yeah. And it sort of reached a fever pitch and we're all, you know, the sons and daughters and, you know, other children of, of this in this moment. Um, and we can kind of have a connection with the the recent slavery and mechanization and all of these other attributes that sort of happened post enlightenment. But I really think it's a much longer story than that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And, and I don't know, for me personally, I'm trying to figure out uh, at the moment as a, as a person who's like a, a scientist and that, you know, feels like my, my vocation and my, my calling in a lot of ways, you know, how do I do what I'm doing um, in service of that kind of work? Uh, and that's a, that's an interesting question. I'm trying to figure it out. Um, so, so it's, it's good to know others are, are interested in it too. Um, and yeah, well, hopefully this can be a forum for that because I'm also really passionate for, about that. So maybe we should do a little bit of a round and then, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to have my friend Rowan White, who's an indigenous uh, seed saver, and my friend Javier Carrera, who's an indigenous seed saver. And, um, you know, those are people in my close orbit that have really beautiful and strong perspectives about this. And then I'm hopeful to start inviting other folks. And, you know, maybe we can even create a little bit of a discussion forum, because I think listening is really important, discussing yeah. and kind of understanding yeah, what does it look like to reimagine agriculture? What does it look like actually also, you know, we have this pretension, I think, the, the enlightenment values of science yep. like, and rational material, materialist approach to epistemology. 
and how we know has this sort of strange pretension of being value free. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's not true. And we can see that even from sort of quantum mechanics sort of tells us that the observer changes the observed. Mm -hmm. And you can walk that back and apply a social lens and you can be like, okay, well, my bias, my implicit biases are going to change the science. Yeah. <laughs> and the science is going to have this, is going to change the engineering and the engineering is going to change the world. And so therefore you get all the way back to this root and we have to ask ourselves, you know, what I think it's less, you know, I, I come at it. I, I mean, I love the postmodern sort of perspective here, which, which it, like rattles that tree and invites us to ask these critical questions. I also tend to be more, so I, I mean, maybe, I don't know if more is the right word, but I'm at the end of the day, I also think we can't just be coffee, coffee house critics of ourselves. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, even one step up from what is this sort of epistemology behind science, but, but also just science is also just a social process, right? It's, yeah. um, so, so what people choose to investigate and what do they sort of choose to sort of have consensus around what is valuable or what is true in all these kinds of different ways. Um, you know, that's, that's a process that, you know, is, is social and everybody brings <clears throat> to the table their whole history along with that. Um, and I think that happens in ag uh, a lot, you know, um, this sort of, dismissal of certain kinds of production systems as no, those will never work here. Um, when, you know, actually maybe they could, you know, maybe, maybe civil pasture is, is a really viable option, um, to replace certain kinds of production systems in the upper Midwest. Um, you know, so, so figuring out how that all kind of like all these different parties kind of, uh, you know, change the process by which we come to consensus and everything like that. And, I, I don't know, as a, as, a, as a scientist, I struggle with it a little bit too in that um, I do see value in, in the, the sort of um, kind of cold rationalism of, of science. You know, it's, it is sort totally. of a, a process that can be really insightful. Um, um, so hopefully, you know, what we'll, we'll learn to do is, is apply it in, in, in new and different ways um, and, and sort of also figure out how to make it sort of be in conversation with other kinds of epistemologies um, as, as we move forward. Um, yeah, totally. Have you been, I mean, what, what are you, I, I mean, first I'll just ask, what are you listening to these days? You do, you know, you probably do podcasts or like tune into news and things like that. So that's one question I'm really curious about. And then the other one, after you answer that, I kind of want to trend our conversation towards, I'm curious what in your, um, academic career what what is the relationship been with philosophy of science and sort of the 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 sort of unveiling and understanding and evaluating personal bias or cultural bias in and how that generates a pro you know um um experiment design or other methodology methodological sort of thing. So I'm curious, I want to talk about that a little bit, but first I want to like, just get a sense of like, what are you listening to right now in this crazy moment of sort of like filter bubbles and coronavirus and Black Lives Matter movement emerging and, you know, election cycle in the US and all the other layers of madness, global, peak global weirding, here we are. What are you, what are you imbibing in terms of, you know, like media? 
Yeah, what media am I consuming? Yeah, um, you know, I, I mean, certainly consuming some media as escape. So, so yep. <laughs> things like, like uh, I, have a, I have a soft spot for, you know, weird cartoons. I've been watching a lot of things like Bob's Burgers lately as escape. But anyhow, that's, that's, not, <laughs> that's not your core question. Um, I, but it's cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah I do. <laughs> I, I have my escapist consumption, media consumption as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, podcast I, I've been listening to actually you know, finally got around to a recommendation that I think you and somebody else made at a conference years ago. Um, the Revolutions podcast. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Greg, I'd be Greg Ostick, probably. Yeah, yeah, I know. He's a big fan of that one. Um, so I've been listening to that. Um, started at the beginning. So, you know, I think moving through um, awesome. on the American Revolution now, which is, of course, really interesting to get a uh, more detailed history of that in light of the current moment. Um, and uh, gosh, what else? Um, you know, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't settled on like a good politics podcast um, uh, in a while. I've bounced around to a lot of different ones yeah. um, from, you know, various um, sort of perspectives on the sort of left of center spectrum um, and, and haven't really settled on anything. I've been reading a whole lot more, um, you know, a lot more sort of kind of opinion journalism, um, things like that. I've, I've found um, some sources like uh, The New Republic and, and Jacobin to, to have some really valuable perspectives um, on the current moment. Um, been enjoying that. And, and then just sort of, you know, a lot of the typical ones do, sort of just consuming, consuming news. I, I find I consume news mostly through reading at this point. Uh -huh. um, sort of, you know, talking heads um, tend to sort of <laughs> make my blood boil. Um, so, so I find that sort of reading is, is, is my preferred way to, to, to stay informed and everything like that. Um, other than that, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, but uh, oh, to your to your point too, though, about your question about philosophy of science and as a scientist, how I engage with that. It's, it's sort of surprising. Um, I pretty minimally in a lot of ways, you know, it's it's um, there's a lot of sort of beyond your sort of particular field. Uh, there's a lot of stuff around, you know, training and responsible conduct of research. There's a lot of sort of implicit training in, you know, how to do experiments through your statistics training, how to sort of separate, you know, um, you know, bias and do ex things like experimental design. Um, but there isn't really a whole lot of, of kind of deep reading or deep learning on um, what were the sort of intellectual roots of, of that process um, and, you know, kind of enlightenment roots of that. Um, so I think, you know, most of my, uh, you know, personal work on that or interest has sort of come from personal interest and, and, and as well just from, from friends who um, are in science adjacent or non-science fields and mm -hmm. uh, academics on environmental studies um, who, who, love to be able to point that stuff out, um, you know, <laughs> love to point out that no, you sort of are not the, the sort of only field um, with um, any sort of claim to, to, to truth or truth. Uh, so, so a lot of that has come through conversations with friends who are, you know, anthropologists or yeah. uh, come from other kinds of science adjacent fields or other kinds of science fields where um, the conversation is different, you know, folks in public health and things like that. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, I think, where a lot of my sort of thinking and growth on that, that topic has, has come from. So sort of informally, which is kind of interesting. So. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting. That was kind of going to be my guess. I mean, actually, 
the I, you know, I did environmental science as an undergrad and, you know, sort of interdisciplinary science and, you know, atmospheric and uh, terrestrial ecology. I was sort of trying to do, a, I did a little bit of everything, yeah. but the reason why I didn't move further into a scientific direction for my, you know, like a, a pure scientific direction for my master's degree. And then, and, you know, and then in life, I kind of like drifted out of, you know, way out of academic streams, but I had this moment of realization. I took a bunch of, I did a bunch of like ethics work in my environmental science program. And I started to realize that all of these people in academic scientific disciplines had never even taken an ethics class. Yeah. <laughs> or a philosophy of science class and had never read Kuhn or didn't yeah. understand theories around, around paradigms and hadn't had any critical, hadn't like been forced to do any critical thinking about sort of like like the layer deeper of social construction of the scientific method. Yeah. And I was just like, I, I'm out. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, and sometimes I regret that and sometimes I don't, but I feel like that, if I could like hand wave and like change some core piece of how in our country we approach science, it would be to make sure that people are, that, that people doing, pursuing rigorous scientific fields also are engaging with sort of the study of the social construction of science, not to yeah. force anything, like not to force, because people should make their own judgments of that, but there's just so much value to just like having that sort of metacognitive reflective moment of like, huh, how, yeah. like what's going on here and being able to converse. And that to me, it, you know, part of the reason I was asking the first question is it, what I'm tuned into right now is that there's a big fight between, there's a big, like, so there's a societal fight right now between kind of like the classic, classical liberal um, enlightenment values, science, you know, rational materialist perspective, and the sort of postmodern woke yeah. left. And, and on the left, and that's all like center to left that that's happening. Yeah. And then there's stuff on the, you know, on the right wing and it gets all confusing and there's different stuff. It's very, it's a mess. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of unexpected alliances. And <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And in-group and out-group tribal things taking place, which are really weird and interesting and fascinating and sometimes scary. But yeah. the... I've just been keeping track of, you know, the critique of, you know, sort of like, it's like, and I don't know if you, you know, I've been increasingly, I kind of got sucked into this media um, consumption pattern just to try, because I got really curious, centered around sort of the intellectual dark web um, yeah. folks and Eric Weinstein and Brett Weinstein and, you know, to a certain degree, Jordan, I, I, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, that whole crowd, all of them I can only take so much of because I get to a certain point and I'm just like, I just like kind of like hold, put my head in my face and I'm just like, oh my God, you guys, yeah. blind, like this is like the unwillingness to deal with this particular blind spot in my judgment is very frustrating. But at the same time, I also try to listen to the, I listen to a bunch of really far left 
sort of academic social justice oriented, you know, podcasts, you know, or read Jacobin or whatever. I sort of like imbibe. I'm trying to sort of like consume on both ends of that spectrum to understand. And I just have to say, I feel like everybody's missing the point sort of. Yeah. On both yeah, sides, I, I feel so frustrated that everybody's missing the point. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I'd agree with you that like I, you do see that tension happening, and then and even more specifically within this, you know, science things like um, the March for Science um, that you know generated a ton of conversation among scientists, where there's this sort of narrative within that that March for Science, which was you know done in response to um you know what was happening in, in some of the federal administrations and what felt like the sort of silencing of, of climate scientists and federal administrations all really concerning and the march for science emerged as this sort of you know call to to all scientists to sort of stand up for for science um and their at least their conception of science as an important process of like you know public life and, and how we make decisions in political and social spaces and everything like that and that I think is what was really interesting to watch was um, there was a lot of folks I think who who hadn't really necessarily thought around you know okay what is science and, and sort of how do, you know what is a sort of intellectual basis for science and the scientific method who were sort of saying a lot of things like oh it's this sort of objective truth maker um, it should be something that we all agree upon and we all value equally um, as as a sort of as a society which you know echoes, I think, you know, as you were describing this sort of very kind of Western, um, big L liberal um, yeah. kind of uh, perception of, of, of things. And well, I think there's some value in that. It was, it was just sort of interesting in that it generated this huge sort of conversation and tension among scientists. And, and I think a lot of folks, you know, pivoted from that moment to really begin to examine like, okay, uh, how true is that, is that statement? Um, and, you know, are there ways in which I have been blind to the fact that my particular field or my work is, you know, socially constructed, and there's all the, you know, ways that I should re-examine that. Um, so I think the upshot of, of some of this conversation is that, like, you, you do see scientists beginning to, to think about that and evaluate that more. Like you, I, I wish there was sort of more um, of a kind of integration of that into curriculums. You know, I think about my undergraduate science, it was so consumed with, with being able to get the necessary grounding in all these different fields. You know, I was, I was actually pre-medical for a while. So I did, you know, like the whole chemistry track, the math track, the only track I didn't get to was physics. Um, so I didn't really have much time for other classes. And that yeah. was just, I'm grateful for that grounding in all those different fields. That was really valuable. Um, but it would have been also cool to have had some grounding in you know, philosophy of science. So I wish the same were true, especially as you move more into the graduate level. Because at the very least, even if you, you sort of come back around to, um, and I think about this for myself, come back around to a perspective of, no, this is still a really useful system of knowledge um, and a useful way to, to learn. Um, understanding critiques of it uh, makes you way more cognizant of potential blind spots, as well as, you know, open to considering other ways of, of doing things like from a very pragmatic standpoint. It's made me more open to considering different ways of doing experiments or, or sort of how to coming to new conclusions. Whereas I might have thought before, no, it has to be done in a sort of controlled experiment setting, um, realizing that like, you know, our sort of interest in that was really driven by a particular form of logic models. Um, we can move beyond that, um, especially when we have better, you know, research tools and 
better capacity for doing things like handling data. Um, yeah, I think it's sort of would be super valuable. Um, but yeah, how those those tensions play out more and and political and social spaces will be, I think, uh, pretty interesting. I you know, my my take on on folks within the intellectual dark web and I yeah I I can't very consume what they're doing very much at all because <laughs> I find it really frustrating. Yeah. Um, is that they are sort of really blindly applying these these sort of principles um, and, and arguing um, that they're the only ones that are right um, and that like society has lost its way. It sort of very quickly pivots. I saw this comment recently. Their arguments very quickly pivot towards civilizational decline um, when in fact it may just sort of be their particular sort of position of supremacy is what's actually in decline and that that's what they're reacting to. Um, well, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I find that critique of, of those kinds of folks really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Have you, are you at all familiar with the um, spiral dynamics framework by chance? I'm not, no. Uh, it's an interesting meta framework of, it's, it was originally um, a psychologist called Claire Graves um, created this back and in, in, in actually it sort of has parallels with Maslow's hierarchy. And so what he was talking about was on a social and individual level, he, he felt like it was a society wide and individual level. There was this sort of biopsychosocial bio um, emergent sort of feedback where your worldview essentially um, as an individual or as a society goes through these sort of paradigm shifts. And he was sort of tracking it and he had different, you know, he had sort of different axes that he was tracking in interviews and stuff. And, you know, I, uh, it's fascinating. He's sort of, you know, um, internal locus of control versus external locus of control, meaning like how individualistic are you versus how many, how collectivist are you? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, some other attributes where he was sort of seeing like, okay, so, so you know, you could, you know, and he, he labeled it with colors or actually I think people who came later and used his work and they turned his academic work into spiral dynamics, which got turned into sort of like a management consulting tool and all this other stuff. But anyway, um, it's, it's part of integral. It's like the core of integral theory, like Ken Wilber's stuff, um, which is all very interesting. I, I strongly recommend people um, like review that it's out, it's outside of standard academic canon, but it's really all very interesting stuff. Um, Ken Wilber stuff is really interesting. I have my critique of both of these things, but anyway, the spiral dynamics, it identifies, you know, sort of this move, classical move from sort of like archaic hunter gatherer to sort of, um, sort of a strong man, kind of like tribal in group, like not like the move from egalitarian to sort of like, you know, dominance hierarchy. And then the move from that into sort of a, a um, like dog, into dogma, like church, like dogma, you know, like Catholic church, like there's this dogma, whether it comes from a book or it comes from these people or whatever it is, there's sort of like hierarchy and dogma. Uh, and then from that, it goes to rational materialist, sort of liberal um, values, market, science these sorts of things and then from that it goes to post essentially postmodern sort of like a re-evaluation of egalit like everyone's perspective matters equally and so you can't you know sort of um create a hot you know um 
complete reaction to any hierarchy. And each one of these uh, rungs on this ladder reacts to the previous one. So yeah. it, it like can't see the value in the previous one or the next one. It like yeah. it, as the next one emerges, it also reacts to the next one. So if, you know, and that's like the intellectual dark web, the, one of their big critiques is like anti-hierarchical thinking. Yeah. Um, they're, they're sort of like, it's insane to think that everybody has an equal opinion. You have somebody who has 20 years in a scientific field and you have some asshole on social media, they don't have equal weight. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, 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 you know, like if you take, if you distill the sort of the, the most, like, like critical theory and postmodern thinking at its most, you know, like, you know, there's this idea in, in those sort of like, not in the intellectual dark web, because they're not into spiral dynamics or Ken Wilber. They don't, they haven't like gotten that, I don't think. And that's part of what's, I think that's part of the ignorance there. But anyway, the, the postmodernism can turn into the mean green meme, where it starts to react to anything that isn't as woke as it. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. It, and, 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 then it basically almost it like fuses down with the dogmatic blue and it almost starts to look like a like a weird church that's yeah. just sort of like saying things and so you can sort of see it's a cool it's a cool mental model yeah how true it actually is i i don't know but um the idea is that after that there's actually there has to be a transcendence and an inclusion in and so you actually have to in order to get to the next level which you know, in spiral dynamics, there's this the theoretical line. And once you pass above the green meme, this postmodern meme, you, can, you actually are no longer reactive to any of the worldviews. Yeah. So you start to just see them as interesting and cool and contextually relevant and, you know, adapted. You're like, oh, wow, that's a perfect adaptation for, for those people. And I totally respect that that's where they're, that's what they're doing. That's cool. I could speak their language. I can talk to them. I can hear them and I can be like, oh, wow, I really respect your conservative sort of community approach and it generates all these good things for you. And I like, that's great, you know, but, but what about this? You know, so you can start to talk to people without yeah. fighting in a way. That's the theory. The theory is you go past this line and then you can sort of see, see things. And I really see the, the like, you know, intellectual dark web versus the social justice warriors. It's like the green meme versus the orange meme. And they're just, you know, and, and like, there's a, there's a level to which, and another, like, this might be interesting for you, another really cool set of thinking that I've run across recently is called metamodernism, which is, which is sort of like postmodernism, but including like all the good things of the enlightenment. So it's, they're sort of like, yeah, there are hierarchies. Of course there are hierarchies, but you have to be able to examine why the hierarchy exists and decide if you want to adopt it or not. And you may choose that that's a stupid hierarchy. Yeah. Like yeah. systems of racial oppression, that's a stupid hierarchy. But meritocracy based on how much you know, time you put into a field and weighting people's opinions, maybe that's a good hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to hear all that. I, I got to 
Yeah, you've given me a, a good reading list. I got to check out now. And it's really fascinating stuff to me. And I, I'm just, you know, I'm really keen. I'm really interested to see how this all sort of shakes loose because I feel like we're at this moment and, and uh, in time and history where we have all of the world's information at our fingertips. A lot of, we do as, you know, members of a, of a very privileged class of people who of course we can't forget got here because of exploitation, colonial, colonialization, yeah. um, mercantile capital, capitalism, empire, genocide, all of these things are part of the inheritance of, yeah. and weigh out the response, you know, that, that, and that feeds the responsibility we have about how we choose to interact with our fellow humans and the planet and the world. And we have this crazy social fragmentation, social media, hyper normalized, crazy, sort of like the the level of theater in politics went from sort of like, you know, the old classical drama of politics, which was always weird, to reality TV, to like social media echo chamber weirdness. We just like, and that happened in like 10 years and everybody's like, what the hell do we do? And I'm just really fascinated. Like, is this going to be a moment in which there's this beautiful radical flowering into a responsibility and, um, you know, maybe increases in both freedom and justice somehow, is that possible? you know, yeah. on both sides of things and, um, or are we going to just like implode? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see how it all ends too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And I think I, to your point too, on this sort of conflict and, and people, you know, um, how to, how to understand and like to, to bring it back to sort of science spaces in particular, yeah. but, um, those kinds of hierarchies, it's, it's funny. Whereas, um, you know, depending on the context and the particular topic, you know, I think I'm, I'm sort of more open, but like to take the coronavirus pandemic, for for example, um, uh, you know, and, and I think like a term that keeps getting thrown around a lot is the Dunning-Kruger effect, where, you know, your sort of initial foray into a field, um, you begin to learn how little you know about something, your knowledge increases, and then once your knowledge reaches a certain point, your sort of <laughs> understanding of how much you know, you, you know, just plummets you you, you think you know more than you know yeah you, you begin to like as you enter a field you begin to become really familiar with all the things you don't know um, which I think is really true and is a, is a really important kind of interesting thing that I think the majority of, of, of professional scientists would say and why I think like that's that's really interesting so so to that degree whether or not that you know translates into kind of decision-making hierarchies and and how those all play out that's that's something it's more complicated and, and yeah, I think in some cases it is really frustrating to to see um, people uh, who sort of are, are trying to argue that their opinion is as valid as somebody who has you know deep expertise and is, is intimately familiar with all the things they don't know. And in an interesting way, I think you see it's actually happen um, in around agriculture and soil carbon in particular. Yeah. Um, you know, there's sort of in a way, it's it's a way less high stakes debate <laughs> um, than, than, you know, around debates around things like climate change or um, the coronavirus pandemic. There, there aren't really um, lives on the line in the same way. Um, but- Sort of there are though. 
because it yeah, relates to both in the long, it's not an immediate feedback loop, but you know, yeah. if our agriculture fails because of how we, because of our policy and our market relationship and our inability to value public goods and internalize costs and create yeah. a solid, so it is, it is somewhat high stakes, I, I would That's argue. True. I push back on that a little bit. That's true. That's a fair point. Yeah. Different timelines, so the conversations feel different. I'll say that. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's just sort of interesting. You see that, you see that happen in the same way. And, and honestly, I think, um, to kind of bring it full circle, one of my motivations for open science and, and uh, in particular is, is feeling like um, making the sorts of, uh, sort of process of, of, of learning and the process of, of generating knowledge um more accessible to, to to all kinds of different folks mm -hmm. sort of closes some of those gaps in a way um so i don't want to be the person who is a gatekeeper um and says yeah no this production system you say is is so uh, incredible no it's not actually that incredible because i read xyz papers or like i know you know somebody who did it totally yeah I, I, that i think is a, a sort of a really sort of bad way to do it, but um, being able to um, sort of, you know, democratize science, make it more accessible. I think you see that in other places too. I really admire the work of, of groups like Public Lab, right? That, that make it possible for um, <clears throat> smaller communities um, to, to sort of produce knowledge or learn about whether or not like they're being affected by ty different types of pollution and things like that. Um, whereas that sort of, it, it breaks down the sort of gatekeeping that I think science is really guilty of a lot of the time. Um, so how that sort of translates into, um, you know, soil carbon and, and, and the topics I, I know and, and work on a lot, I think would be really interesting, but it's um, at the very least sort of knowing some of these critiques and sort of taking interest in them, mostly because I see how much they um, play out in the sphere of politics um, and the sort of internal politics of, of you know, academia. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's been good. It's been giving me a lot of sort of food for thought on, you know, what kind of scientist do I, I, I want to be? Um, yeah, totally. That, well, that's a really cool, I mean, I think that's an awesome direction to go actually here in the conversation, which is back towards the sort of like proximate context of open team and what's brought this community of people together. It, it feels to me that one of the most, well, amongst, I mean, and, and different people are there for different reasons, right? Um, but there's a lot of people, there's sort of a density of resonance, I think, so sort of social resonance around the disintermediation between, um, society and science and and sort of a, a hypothesis maybe that's shared amongst people i i certainly share that that sort of sense making meaning making knowledge generation capacity needs to be accessible and as close to possible to as many people especially in agriculture as yeah. possible as possible it's like yeah. we have to like co look we have to not have like we have to increase everybody's expertise in certain areas, not expertise in the sense of it's like, it's interesting and exactly what you said. We shouldn't be falling into the sort of like book knowledge expertise. We yeah. need to grow capacity and capability in 
you know, collecting data and storing data and analyzing data, um, experimental design, you know, these sorts of like fundamental building blocks of knowledge generation and meaning making and decision making. Are you still with me, Dan? Looks, I can see you again. Did I lose you for a second? Yeah, yeah. Here we go, back. I think you left off at um, just sort of like a shared uh, shared sort of hypothesis uh, amongst people within the Okatine world that uh, sort of the value of, of being able to, yeah. I don't disintermediate, know. disintermediate, you know, science from people participating in a peer group who are from the managers and the decision makers and, and kind of like create a, a new way of knowledge generation and decision making and sense making amongst a, you know, a, a very diverse community, right? You have your farmers, you have people purchasing things, processing, you have consumers, you have policymakers, you know, that, that, that whole community of actors in order to approach the sort of dynamic holistic challenges of, of yeah. agriculture and climate like everybody needs to have an increase of capability capacity access to this sort of like basic infrastructure of of knowledge generation essentially totally yeah I, I i definitely agree and i think that's the thing that makes me the most excited about it and the most excited to be a participant and and i you know i think honestly i think there are models for that in, in agriculture in particular you know? you know like the whole extension system is in its most ideal form, that's that's kind of what it is, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of this um, kind of solidarity between people who are, are researchers and people on the production side to to sort of really work and learn together. And it's, it's amazing. I think, unfortunately, you know, through, um, you know, the shrinking of budgets and austerity, a lot of those sort of extension departments have uh, have shrunk in a lot of ways um, and, and don't have the same capacity. But um, I see open team as like a, as a chance to do, to, to marry that kind of, um, sort of form of, of, you know, kind of scientific cooperation and everything like that, along with technology pieces that would, you know, help sort of make that a lot, uh, a lot, you know, more frictionless. Um, and that to me, I think is, is just really cool and really exciting. Um, and, and also just, um, for me, also one of the sort of really practical reasons I, I got interested in this is just knowing that I don't know that we'll necessarily get some satisfactory answers to a lot of the really sticky questions around topics like which production systems are most valuable for XYZ reasons, um, which, you know, methods for assessing soil carbon stocks are that have the least uncertainty. I don't know that we'll really get to satisfactory answers around those questions until we do the kind of like really distributed research that's, yeah. that's hard to do um, in most academic contexts where it's sort of, there's more incentive to do other kinds of research. Um, and yeah, so, so that I think is, is really cool. If we could, you know, have really geographically distributed research that also fosters um, a different kind of learning community um, and learning process, um, that to me is like, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, um, you know, perhaps it's a little bit sort of, 
naively optimistic, but for me, it just sort of is a really exciting, you know, possible project to participate in. Yeah, totally. That sort of shift into action research, participatory action research, and yeah. peer, peer networks who are, you know, um, collecting data and, you know, lowering the bar also to analyze that data. I mean, I think that's, that is, that's very resonant. I mean, that's also why we're excited about Open Team and, and has been a really a core pillar of region networks perspective is just sort of, you know, from our perspective, I mean, there's a couple of things here to just like anchor in my mind around, you know, kind of telling you and telling everybody else, telling the world sort of in a way, the our wariness about being all in on the commodification of carbon in the way that sort of like Nori is unabashedly all in on just like, all we're doing is commodifying carbon and we don't care about anything else. I've been very wary of that for a variety of different reasons. We talked about some of that in terms of, you know, sort of like um, context, implicit biases, like how do you, you know, are we imposing kind of like a, a particular set of colonial brained sort of like solutions and then where does that go if it if it intersects with you know the amazon rainforest or whatever so anyway so i have like that going on and then at the same time we have these sets of intractable in, intractable or they're not intractable actually but they require us to do participatory complex sort of action research in over broad areas in order to be able to have any kind of understanding about ecological state in a meaningful way. You just simply can't do it with like, you know, an ivy tower, sorry, an ivory tower approach. Yeah. You, you have to get out and like get participation of a bunch of farmers yeah. and land stewards and people, they have to participate and you have to make the tools accessible to them. And, you know, you have to make it worth their while to participate. Uh, not yeah. just extract value from them. So you have to sort of embody a very new way of relating in order to yeah. actually make the knowledge work. It has yeah. to happen that way. And you confuse those two things of like, well, maybe we don't want to impose the type of market agreements that we just sort of like abstractly think are going to be the best. And maybe we, and we need to have like a real robust peer-to-peer sense-making network that can verify things and participate in claims. And that essentially, that fusion is, is what we've attempted to create in the architecture of region network, where you can, where, where you can create sort of um, a registry system of methodologies and claims and data and have that accessible in public so that people can sort of create their own, you know, amongst this context, we're going to use this and, you know, this data and this methodology for these types of agreements and just make it like, like lower the bar. And, and this is kind of what you were talking about in terms of, you know, you just have to have the, the, the tools, the technology has to make it accessible. Yeah. Totally. Like it can't just be that there are a bunch of really well paid people are the only people who can do methodology development. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think that's, I would agree. And it's just, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I just think I've, I've been surprised and 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 heartened by the number of times where you sort of reduce some of that barriers or sort of move into you know get more people together that have you know a similar overall objective but coming from different very different spots, um, and you end up with just some some really cool outcomes. And and so figuring out like a way to sort of do uh, you know science in a, in a way that's really empowering. I think the other other phrase I've, I've heard used um, is you know like a science in solidarity with people. Mm -hmm. um, that I think I just think that's it's really cool. It's sort of um, you know, hopefully kind of can create a model and, and, you know, thinking about open team in particular, um, I find it just super interesting and that, you know, the, the sort of breadth of, of, of people from different kinds of organizations working on different kinds of projects that, um, have come together and that, that Dorn has sort of been able to, Dorn Cox has been able to kind of bring together into one group, um, with a shared purpose has been, really pretty cool. I think, you know, it's uh, a lot of people are in that same um, kind of point where they see the same things, they see the same problems, the same sort of gaps in our knowledge. They see the answer as this sort of like broader scale style of research rather than a series of experiments. Um, so figuring out, okay, how do we make that work and how do we make that happen? Um, and how do we really make it scale um, is, it's just really cool. So, so let's talk about that for just a second. So, you know, I, I really love, and, and I don't know where it's sort of like Dorn's vision. In some ways, I don't know where Dorn's vision begins and, and you know, and ends and my vision it. begins and ends. And, you know, like yeah. where there's sort of like this collective gestalt that we're, that, that I think a bunch of people are tuned into that yeah. I have a hard time like tracking. Was I thinking that way before I met Dorn or not? I, I think a bunch of it was, sort of like a, a that Dorn has been championing for a long time and other people have also there's been like a convergence of of a set of sort of like if you if you believe these principles are true then this sort of approach to knowledge generation in the agroecological space is sort of like blatantly obvious that's that's my assumption is like if you believe a few principles which we were kind of just talking about so one of the things I'm most excited, and Dorn specifically has been championing for a long time, is this relationship between like really well-researched hub observation farms, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, in the open team context, we have Picinus Ranch, we have Caney Fork, mm -hmm. you know, they're not participating as much, but maybe they will, or maybe Stone Barns, maybe, um, um, maybe Stone House and Mud Creek Farms, although I don't know how much they are or aren't going to participate. Um, all of which, those farms are all basically endowed or owned by billionaires. Yeah, yeah. Or, or millionaires that are close to billionaires. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is amazing. Yeah. I think, because you get this you get what we need, which is rigorous research that is allowed to be independent and isn't at the, at the moment can maintain kind of an apolitical stance. Because I think a lot of the, like if you were to just like completely house something completely only within academic establishments, there, there starts to be problems. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, that's fusing 
with amazing projects like Quick Carbon and Comet and, you know, that are housed within academic institutions. Yeah. So, so there's this cool balancing act, right? You have these independent, privately financed things, and then you have the, you know, like sort of the academic institutions, and then you have a big network of farmers, and then you've got private, you know, corporate interests like General Mills and, um, you know, Danone and, and Stonyfield. Stonyfield's done amazing work in all of this. So it's like, what really strikes me is that on their own, any one of these sort of like types of actors would be completely unable to, to create the type of breadth and participation needed to get their own needs met. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's, it, it ends up being just you know, from like a perspective of a scientist and somebody who's had to sort of build experiments before and, and all that kind of stuff, being able to have a, a sort of network where you have sort of differing levels of intensity that like, you know you can sort of engage uh, with questions on, you know, like the, these hub farms where if we decide as a group, like, okay, there's this question that we know is just going to take a lot of effort to answer and a lot of sort of continued work and monitoring. Those are there as an option versus ones where, you, you know, a more distributed sort of approach with a lot of different kinds of systems and geographies and soil types represented is um, better. Um, sort of being able to have that kind of fluidity to, to, to do different kinds of things to answer questions in different ways, um, I think is, is really cool. I think just as a, personally, I think a lot of scientists would be pretty excited about, about that. Totally. And to have a, da a data commons where, you know, yeah. maybe it's not a universal data commons, but the data is, has a shared format, shared ontologies and shared yeah. protocols for access. So whether you need to pay for it or have certain permissions or, you know, fulfill some agreement in order to access it, th that stuff all I mean, I think take it for granted. It's not just going to be that all everybody's private data is out there, but the the interoperability and the, the sort of like the common pool resource of that, you know, data that goes really deep in a place and data that's spread out wide over, you know, a place. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, fusing that with, you know, newly available and newly cheap, you know, earth observation, you know, satellite data, multi-spectral imagery, and, you know, a bunch of new things coming online on the hardware side of things, it starts yeah. to be, I'm just like, wow, this is going to be the golden age of, you know, there's about, there's about to, we're on the cusp where we're already in the, like this, a scientific explosion, a knowledge explosion of, of ecology, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm equally excited about it. I think it's, it's cool. It's it's fun also to be sort of and just really challenging also to to sort of be at that point there too where okay how do we do this and do it right or yeah. <laughs> do it in a way that like down the line we're not kicking ourselves um, and things like that and that that part's really um, really fun if if a bit of a brain teaser um, you know like what sort of data formats and ontologies you know that that's uh, you can make decisions now that are really end up being kind of important way down the line so. Um, yeah, I just think about the sort of like the amount of work that's been done in the past, you know, agricultural research is, is, has a really long storied history. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, experiments that have been going on for a really long time, a lot of foundational 
um, classical stats was developed in the ag context, um, which is super interesting. Hmm. Um, so being able to sort of um, figure out how to kind of blend that type of stuff in with a, a sort of new style and and recognize that you know we're in a field that is really applied um, and that there's yeah. this sort of huge working landscape um, that uh, could also become a place where we we learn um, in in different ways than we've learned previously. I think we've always learned from those working landscapes, but in a, in a, a really different model. Um, that's just cool. Uh, you know, it's um, I, I really love uh, Doran's uh, one-liner of like turning every farm into a research farm. I, I, I find that to be sort of yep. a pretty good encapsulation of things and, and really motivating. So yeah, totally, and and able to act on the collective intelligence of a giant network of totally. sense making. So so like I am both a research farm and I have access as a farmer to you know the cutting edge of understanding about soil health and climate and you know um, all these different variables probably yield and you know crop information intercropping information all these things that's i, I believe it's it, it has the potential to i mean this is sort of gets in, into some of the esoteric stuff and actually dorn and i talked about this on our podcast together but just sort of like what does it look like? It's exact. It's one of the foundational pieces you were referring to e earlier, which is the historical context of agriculture. In the historical context of agriculture, farmers have oftentimes over the last 10,000 years essentially been slaves of one sort or another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, either technically or in all but name or in complex economic relationships that don't give yeah. them options or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, how do we sort of like venerate and uplift farmers to become the pillars of society that are producing the most important public goods, clean air, clean water, you know, uh, climate risk mitigation adaptation. Yeah. Like all the most important things, our food, basic food, fuel, fiber, medicine, all of the most important things of civilization, farmers are responsible for. Yeah. So what does it look like for them to have, you know, to have standing of, yeah. of a doctor, of, you know, of a scientist, of an engineer, of all of these people? Like, what does that look like? What does that transition look like? And to me, that's sort of like a fundamental an unspoken but fundamental aspect of what we're doing in open team basically yeah i i think yeah to me it feels like that same i think you described it just a moment ago as a like a shared gestalt uh assertive or, or motivation um, and i think that i find that to be to be true i think in a lot of conversations with different people who are participating you know in various ways you come roundabout to to some of the same ideas yeah um which are you know um you know, sort of being humbled by the amount that um, farmers do um, and, and sort of sharing this feeling of how do we actually sort of uh, put that in private place, right? And, and sort of uh, make sure it's sort of known and how do we also sort of move towards uh, relationships with, with, um, with those folks that uh, sort of center them in different ways um, and, and support them in new ways, um, which I think is, 
it's cool. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, a while ago, I think it was like, oh, that's, that's the kind of model I would love to participate in um, and, and help make happen. So being at a point where it feels uh, more tangible and being able to kind of wrestle with all the questions that emerge from that is, is cool. Um, feels like we're almost there, right? It's like, yeah, <laughs> I think it's coming online. It's starting to um, move. I mean, how much, how much are you pulling from open team generated data in your work right now? Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, a number, it's, it's funny, a number of the um, key hub farms that are part of open team or, or will be part of open team are folks that I uh, previously worked with or had, a, um, you know, have collected yeah. data at their locations. So some of that sort of foundational data um, from, those locations is, is what I've worked with to, to do some of the really preliminary work with Quick Carbon. Um, I think uh, in future, um, you know, hopefully as, as like things get spun up and we come up with some sort of agreed upon procedures and infrastructure to be able to actually just ingest a lot of information and reach out to people and set up collaborations the right way. Um, I, I could imagine a lot of that data would be like hugely useful. You know, because a lot of what I'm doing is 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 uh, really rooted in um, MRV mo monitoring methods for soil carbon, and verifying which ones you know work or don't work, and understanding the sort of limits on their uncertainty. Um, I've come to the, the sort of conclusion that like really the best way to do that would be able to have it like a lot of information spread from a lot of different locations. Yeah. So I actually have you know data from okay this production system where the topography looks like this, it's this soil type, it's this geological history, here's how that method works there versus this other place that is way more homogenous and has a completely different kind of soil. Um, you know, how does this method work there? Um, that I see is the best empirical path towards the kinds of answers I'm looking for. Yeah. So I could see, you know, the kinds of data, um, databases that open team would be capable of generating especially if we like are really thoughtful at the outset on how do we sort of set this stuff up and and generate the most useful data i'd just be massive i think it would just be really really cool um otherwise it's you know the kind of uh you know from scratch effort that like you'd have to do like something like soil health partnership right which is an amazing project where they they partnered with a bunch of farms on the ground to do a set of distributive experiments um, but it's, you know, that amount of effort is, is huge. So if, if open team can sort of set something up similar, um, that is, you know, pretty accessible, um, to a variety of different kinds of scientists and is in conversation with the producers. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I, from a research perspective, um, that could be hugely useful for, for, for me and my particular work. So. How are we doing with that? Do you think, I mean, cause <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, how are we actually doing? in in serving because i think that so clearly is what we need to do and sometimes i i feel as though at least i you know i lose the forest for the trees so to speak sometimes and i get the sense maybe that's a shared experience because because it is so technical and, and there's so many different moving pieces and you know we're working on you know just just getting these two tools to to talk to each other is a whole thing and then you know you do that over and over again so sort of zooming out at the pattern level of what you just laid out which is this yeah. vision of essentially what I would call the world's biggest scientific instrument. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think we're getting there for, for certain. I mean, I've, I've definitely had that same experience where 
I felt like I was like way lost on like, a, okay, how do we even set these like the right field methods up for this or that and way lost on that and losing some bigger picture. And, and just the experience too of like, it's a huge group with a lot of people with different motivations for, for participating. So a big part of how do you sort of work within a context like that is, is just like getting to know each other, you know, learning yeah. like what, what are these different motivations and, and how do they do and how they do and don't match. And, and how do you, you know, based on that, how do you come to the right um, sort of setup? Um, so I think it's, it's taken longer than I, than I anticipated, but um, you know, I am, I'm not uh, frustrated by that anymore. I think I, I just sort of realized, you know what, um, this is the kind of thing that like broad community based efforts just require. So, um, you know, how do we, how do we do that and, and sort of manage that process? And um, also how do we manage that process though, so that we also don't get attrition, right? Where people are, are sort of like, well, I can't really see like what the big picture is, so it's not worth my time or something like that. I think figuring out how to how to do that, um, and well, while also not doing the opposite of that, to where where we say, oh no, let us solve this problem, and then come back and someone says that's not why I wanted to participate, or no, yeah, I don't want to do it for that reason, or you're asking me to do more than I can. Um, so figuring out how to how to do that is has been a huge learning process um but it's been uh really interesting so so i don't know i think I, we had that sort of big um full full group meeting a little while ago and i came away from that meeting having felt like okay i i, I sort of can see the bigger picture again now um and where we're moving towards so yeah it's so, happening yeah motivation for for continued more focused work in the, in the area where i can be most useful yeah uh, so, I, I mean, I know this is a, maybe a taboo question to ask, but when are you publishing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's a good question. Uh, <coughs> for for uh, my quick carbon work, uh, hopefully very soon. Yeah, I, I've, I've done, you know, it, to get into the weeds a little bit on some of that, um, you know, we did this huge effort in 2018, gathered a ton of soil samples and a ton of data. Mm -hmm. um, and just through that whole process though, like, you know, took a lot of what our site had built in both the hardware and software side and just, you know, broke it to smithereens. Like, yeah, like, ran it through the All the different yeah. ways we had been overconfident and, and things like that um, from a variety of different perspectives. So a lot of what I've been doing in this sort of interim between then is working with our side to do things like, okay, um the data we gathered isn't clean for this reason you know we had some trouble with like electronic like just electronics so can we fix that so we can sort of get some better data retroactively um plus so you can like so reverse engineer it essentially like understand what the interference was and then filter yeah. it basically yeah exactly um so being able to do some of that and just then also just a huge volume of work um and then you know people moving in different directions um so so it's it's definitely been slower than I would like, but it's also um, been you know a kind of a, a labor of love, and, and I've been trying to be really meticulous also because I don't want to um, sort of inflate people's hopes. Right, we're at this moment where um, something like what we're doing in Quick Carbon, um, people are, are really enthused about, which is awesome and really humbling. Um, but I also don't want to lead them astray and say that we have this solution for you that's going to open up this whole world. 
Um, so I've been trying to be sure, um, you know, in, in my process, which is also, I've also had to learn a lot of stuff along the way around um, all this stuff from a sort of stats and machine learning perspective, um, mm -hmm. how they apply to what I'm doing, um, you know, from a perspective of, um, you know, soil science, all those kinds of different things um, to be able to be sure that um, uh, I'm doing things, you know, well or correctly um, and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I think though it's at the point where, you know, the sort of outcomes from a lot of that initial work are, I feel good about, um, and I, I've, you know, fully examined all my different blind spots, done a lot of sort of revision and things like that. It's mm -hmm. come a long way since like the first, uh, version I had done in like 2017 before the 2018 field season. Um, so all that said, I think within, within the year for sure, um, you know, trying to get other projects off my plate, I think I briefly mentioned, do a lot of work on connecting soil and soil carbon to resilience. Mm -hmm. A handful of projects on that that I'm just trying to sweep away. Um, and then all the other sort of other demands that come with, um, you know, being a, a PhD around teaching and things like that. A lot of those are, are, are uh, I'm past. Um, so, so I'm uh, interestingly within this pandemic, um, able to focus a little bit more on completing things uh, like the output of, of my research work. Um, right. Get distracted in the lab, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm writing way more um, than I was, which is good. Um, so it's a, for me, it's a silver it has, lining has been lots of dis disruption. Yeah. A bit of a silver lining, um, which uh, I can say for a lot of my friends and colleagues, it's not the same. Um, so feeling, feeling really grateful um, in that regard. Is it are is uh, Yale going to be going all online, or has that decision been made yet? Yeah, they just published um, uh, the sort of documentation of what they're going to do. Um, they're doing this sort of mixed uh, um, model that I think a lot of universities are doing. We'll see how it goes um, and see what the student reaction is. But where they want to keep the total density of people on campus down. So some students are being asked to stay home um, or off campus, um, while others are being invited back to campus and there will be a mix of in-person and online classes sort of on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on, uh, as far as I understand it, like if a class cannot be done online, say like a laboratory section um, or something like that, um, they'll do that in person, but what they can do online, they will do online. So we'll see yep. it's it's uh yeah it's having done some you know finished up a teaching assistantship in the spring with online teaching it's definitely it's not as good it's 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 not as fun it's not as uh authentic but you know making the, the best of it as we can given that it's an unusual moment right now so. it's definitely a big transformation and I, I don't know there's any going back after this yeah, yeah. I, I think it's certainly making people think too about you know the sort of value of different styles of education and, and the value of degrees and things like that which is you know probably not a bad thing um but i hope yeah hopefully hopefully uh hopefully it doesn't sort of collapse higher education um i, I would be upset if that happened so. yeah definitely i mean there is a really important role for institutions that that are committed to progressing learning and education and kind of keeping the lineage of um, 
yeah, there, it's it's really important. So yeah. hopefully, my my hope is that it just throws the sorts of inequities in education into a starker light, and we actually constructively work to sort of undo those in better ways, um, rather than it sort of solidifying higher education as a sort of something for the children of elite. You know, right. that's that's my hope of what comes out of it. So we'll see. But. Totally. Cool. Well, um, we're just kind of coming up to the end of our time. I'm super grateful that you took took a, a little bit of your day to sit down and, and chat. Totally. I really had a yeah fantastic time talking to you. Thanks, Dan, for hopping Likewise. on. That's fun. I know we, we strayed pretty far afield from still carbon particularly, but <laughs> that's okay. It's all yeah, good. yeah, it was good. It was all uh, all rich and important. And that sort of social side of things is is has been too long left out of the sort of empirical sciences. So it's good to do a quick, quick uh, sort of circle around that with you. It was fun. Totally. Yeah. And whether I knew it or not, I think it's at the base of a lot of what I do. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, totally. Well, um, yeah, good luck with all of, all of your continued research. I hope you get a little bit of a, a breath of fresh air here in the next couple of weeks of summer and um, look forward to seeing you on open team stuff. Yeah, yeah, and then at some point in person. So. Yeah, totally, <laughs> at some point. Yeah, at some point, All right. If you if If you ever wanna come up uh, up to Western Mass and play around at disc golf or something, just let me know. Cool, all right. <laughs> Take care. Right. Be well, Dan. See ya.